We turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, Paul wrote this epistle to the church at Corinth in which there was much schism, division, and other problems. One of the problems had to do with pride and envy regarding spiritual gifts, so he wrote concerning that topic in this chapter, and in the process he also explains to them the nature of the church as the body of Jesus Christ. So let's read 1 Corinthians 12 together. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away onto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another divers kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the self same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need. But God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. 
Thus far we read the Holy Scriptures. On the basis of this passage and many other passages of Scripture, the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 21 teaches us about the church. Lord's Day 21. What believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? That the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his spirit and word out of the whole human race a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty, readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we continue our consideration of the third part of the Apostles' Creed concerning the truth of God the Holy Spirit. And we do that by looking at the ninth and tenth articles of the Creed in which we confess, I believe in Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Why does the Apostles' Creed place these three articles in the section on God the Holy Spirit? The reason is that the Holy Spirit is the one who baptizes us into the body of Christ, which is the church. And the Holy Spirit is the one who places us into the communion of saints and bestows upon us the riches and the gifts of Christ, and calls us to confess Jesus as Lord and use our gifts for the advantage and salvation of the other members. And the Holy Spirit is the one who grafts us into Christ, who gives us a living faith, and who assures us thereby of the forgiveness of our sins. I believe in Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Notice, first of all here, that we are not confessing that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, in the communion of saints, or in the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes we speak that way, I believe in that, or I believe in that. But the Apostles' Creed doesn't put it in those words. To be more specific and clear, I believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means to say, I trust in God alone through Jesus Christ for all my salvation. I believe in him and in him alone. But I believe an holy Catholic church, that is to say, I believe there is a holy Catholic Church, a communion of saints, and a forgiveness of sins. Now, this confession of faith does not imply that we are Roman Catholic. Many times people, when they hear this article of the Creed, assume that that church must be Roman Catholic because they believe in holy Catholic Church. But that's not the meaning of this confession. Rather, When we say, I believe that there is an holy Catholic church, we're saying, I believe that there is one 
holy and universal church of Jesus Christ, chosen in eternity past, gathered out of all the nations, and manifested in local congregations. We're saying, I can't see that whole church with my eyes all at once. But I believe that it exists because God has revealed it to me in his word. So let's consider together this confession of our faith, believing one holy Catholic church. Notice, first of all, the oneness of the church, then the Catholicity of the church, and then the holiness of the church. The first thing I want us to understand in this article is that the little word an, A-N, in the original version of the Apostles' Creed is actually a number. The more literal translation of the Apostles' Creed is, I believe one holy Catholic church. And that's the first point of the sermon this morning, the oneness of the church. That's part of our confession, part of what we believe. We do not believe that there are many churches. Yes, if we look around us, we see many churches, we see many different denominations in the world, but we do not believe that there are many churches. We believe that there is fundamentally only one church. And the reason we believe what we cannot see with our eyes is because God reveals it to us in the Holy Scriptures. We saw that in the passage that we read in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, Repeatedly, the apostle teaches that there is one body, one church, one spirit, one Christ. Again, in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28, he says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then he goes on to say, Whether you are Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, male or female, ye are all one in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 4, verse 4, the apostle writes that there is one body and one spirit. And this all goes back to what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build many churches. No, upon this rock I will build my church, my one church. The church of Jesus Christ is fundamentally one. There is only one church. That's what we believe. That one church is the company, the assembly, the great multitude of all and everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's the great multitude of all those men and women in the world who partake of the riches and gifts and treasures that are in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's the one company of all those individuals who by the power of the Holy Spirit in them confess that Jesus is not accursed, but Jesus is Lord. It's the great company of those who assemble in many different places on the Lord's Day with a local congregation of believers in order to worship the God of their salvation, through Jesus Christ. It is the one great multitude of those believers who strive to produce the fruits of the Spirit in their lives, who strive to walk by faith, to live in hope, and to abound in love. It's the multitude of Christians who follow Jesus in their lives, come what may. If that brings persecution and suffering and even martyrdom, so be it. It's the great company of believers who live and die by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the church. And there's only one. 
that shows us that the church, the one church of Jesus Christ, is fundamentally the company of the elect. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches in this Lord's Day that the Son of God gathers, defends, and preserves to himself a church, and then notice, chosen to everlasting life. A church chosen, elected, predestinated before the foundation of the world to be the recipient of everlasting life. That's the church, the assembly of the elect. The church is made up of all those individuals, all those men, women, and children whom God, before the foundation of the world, chose in Jesus Christ and appointed them in his love unto salvation merely because it was his good pleasure. The truth of election is not that God, before time, looked into the future because he is all-knowing. He looked down through the corridors of time and he noticed which individuals would choose him, which individuals would love him, which people would believe in Christ and accept Christ into their hearts, and that God then chose them because they chose him. That's the error, the lie of conditional election. That's the Arminian heresy that was rejected by our fathers at the Synod of Dort some 400 years ago. But the truth of the word of God is that God, before the foundation of the world, knew all those people whom he loved and would choose and would appoint to be the members of the body of Christ merely because it was his good pleasure. Not because of anything in us, not because of anything we would do or anything that we have done, but only because he was pleased, only because he wanted to love us and choose us as the body of Christ. Notice what Paul writes in verse 18 of the chapter we read. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. God is the one who sets each one of us in the body, whether we are an eye or an ear or a hand or a foot or whatever part of the body God has decided us to be. He chose us, he loved us, and he placed us right there in the body, according to his good pleasure. God determined in election, in his eternal counsel, in his good pleasure, those people, those specific people that he would call out of darkness into his marvelous light, whom he would call out of the fallen mass of humanity into the new humanity, that he would bring into the new creation to dwell with him for all eternity in his covenant. God determined those specific persons that he would save and separate from the rest of the fallen mass of humanity, that God determined not to save, that God ordained to be vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, according to Romans 9, the reprobate, He chose us out of that mass of humanity to be his elect and beloved people of mere grace and mercy and not because of anything we've done. God elected his church and all of us as members of that church whom he loves. And God has ordained us to everlasting life through faith. God has chosen the church to bring us through this world and into the world to come, to inherit everlasting life in a new world by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to dwell with God in his covenant as the new Jerusalem under the new heavens in the new earth for all the ages of eternity. The church is the company then of the elect who are saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. In whatever denomination they might be found, in whatever congregation they might be found, the church, the one church, is the company of the elect. You know them by their fruits, 
wherever they may be. They are believers who confess Jesus is not accursed, but Jesus is Lord. They are believers who are zealous to do good works, who are zealous to abound in works of thanksgiving and joy and gratitude for such a great salvation. Now that one church that God has elected manifests itself in the midst of the world in congregations of believers and their children and in denominations. In the beginning of the New Testament church, there was only one denomination. And therefore, it was easy to confess one church. There was one church there in Jerusalem. And when, through missions, other churches were established, all those congregations were bound together with one accord and with one mind in the truth of the gospel of Christ. But over time, those churches, that one original denomination was broken into pieces through heresies and schisms innumerable. So that today we look around us and we see thousands and thousands of denominations. Not just thousands of congregations all bound together, but thousands of denominations hopelessly divided hopelessly separated one from each other. And we long for the day when our faith will become sight, when we, the new Jerusalem, will appear before God, no longer divided by schisms and heresies, but altogether one in the new creation. Although we, by our sins, divide the church, God, in his faithfulness, gathers the church, defends the church, and preserves the church. Even through the very midst of the chaos and confusion, even through splits, schisms, heresies, when there's chaos in the church, even when churches wrongly, through wrong ecumenism, merge together when they shouldn't, even when there is apostasy and then reformation, in all of the circumstances and changes of the church on earth, God is secretly and invisibly gathering, defending, and preserving to himself his one church. And even in the midst of it all, he gathers that one church into local congregations of believers and their seed, and into faithful denominations He causes the candlestick that burns with the flame and the light of the truth of God in Christ to stand up in local congregations and to burn. And that candlestick burns more brightly in some churches and less brightly in other churches. And there are others that call themselves churches, but from which the candlestick has been taken away. The candlestick represents the truth of the gospel of Christ as it comes through the pure preaching of the gospel and the sacraments and Christian discipline. And so we are able to know if a church has the candlestick burning because we can see if those marks are there. The Lord calls each one of us to join the church, to become members of the church, where we can see that candlestick burning. And he calls us not only to join a church where we see, yes, there's a candlestick there, but he calls us to join ourselves to a church in which we can see that candlestick burning more brightly rather than less brightly, in which we can see that flame sending out pure light rather than growing dim. It's not just that there's a candlestick there, But we want to be and must be members of a church where the candlestick burns brightly, where the gospel and the sacraments and discipline are faithfully and properly and purely done. And then we are called to stand up in the midst of that church, and like the catechism puts it, to say, I am and forever shall remain a living member of this church 
As long as this candlestick burns, you will find me here as a member of this church. I love this church. I center my life around this church. I devote myself to this church. I want to use my gifts in this church. The apostle warns the members of the church at Corinth against certain sins that can cause schism in the church. He warns us against those sins as well. There's the sin of pride. When we think to ourselves that God has given me tremendous spiritual gifts, and then we are puffed up and we boast that our knowledge, our wisdom, our governing skills, and all the rest are better than others. So much so that we start to think that person, that person, that family, they're not necessary in this church like I am. There's the sin of envy and jealousy in which we look at other members of the church and the gifts God has given to them. Their wisdom, their understanding, their hospitality, their compassion. And we are jealous of their gifts and envious. And we start to think, maybe I'm not the one who is needed in this church. The apostle says, no, the Spirit distributes the gifts of Christ to all the members, but in differing measures and in differing degrees. And we are called to know what gifts has he given to me. And in humility and love for the church, to employ them. The catechism says, this is the communion of saints. First of all, that the Spirit bestows upon all of the members of the church a rich diversity of gifts from our common Lord. And then secondly, that each of us must know it to be our duty readily and cheerfully to employ those gifts for the advantage and salvation of the other members. And the Apostle says at the end of the chapter, it's good to desire the best gifts, but I show unto you a more excellent way. And that's described in chapter 13, where he calls us to walk in the way of love. In the church, there's nothing greater than love. Love for God and love for each other, walking together in love. And when we do, what a blessing it is to be a member of the church, to have a church family where we can use our gifts for others and where others use their gifts for us so that there is no schism in the body. But as the apostle says, all the members have the same care for each other. So if one member suffers, we all suffer together. And if one member is honored, we aren't jealous of him, but we all rejoice together with him. We rejoice in each other's successes and we lament in each other's failures. And there is unity, blessing and joy, the communion of saints. That's the oneness of the church. Now, what about the Catholicity of the church? I believe one holy Catholic church. The word Catholic comes from a Greek word that means literally, according to the whole. Now, what does that mean? The church is a church that is according to the whole. Well, it simply means that the church is gathered out of the whole human race, the whole world, and the whole history of the world from beginning to end. The whole, it's a church found in the whole. When God made the world in the beginning, his plan and idea was not just to have one small little group of people as his church, certainly not to have just one little nation or one little group within that nation or one little ethnic group. But God's plan is much grander than that, much more wonderful and beautiful than that. He wants a church from the whole, the whole world, and throughout the whole of history. I believe that the church is not provincial. The church is not regional. 
The church is not national, but the church is universal. The church is a worldwide institution, a worldwide company of believers. The church is not just here in the modern era, but it was also in the ancient era. But it was not just there in the ancient era, but also in the modern era. The church is not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. The church is from the whole. Now notice two specific aspects of Catholicity. First of all, the Catechism says that the Son of God gathers, defends, and preserves the church from the beginning to the end of the world. It's a Catholic church in that sense that it spans all of time. It comes from the beginning and from the end of time and all throughout time. The Son of God was gathering the church in the Garden of Eden already. Immediately after Adam and Eve fell into sin, And they went into their hiding place in the midst of the trees and tried to cover themselves with vain fig leaves. Then God came to them and said, Where are you? He sought them out. He called them out. He gathered them out from their hiding place. And that's the meaning of the word church. Those who are called out. He called them out of their hiding place and gathered them to himself and spoke the gospel promise to them. I will send a Messiah, and he will crush the head of the serpent, and I will make my covenant with you. The Son of God gathered, defended, and preserved the family of Noah when, in the midst of the most wicked days before the flood, they almost perished, the church almost perished off the face of the earth, came down to eight souls in the end. But God gathered them and defended them out of that wicked world and preserved them in the ark through the flood and washed them in the waters of that flood, baptized them in that flood into his church. The Son of God gathered, defended, and preserved Abraham and Sarah when he called them out of Ur of the Chaldees, called them out of their homeland and into a strange land which he would give to them as a inheritance, the land of promise. And there he defended them and preserved them from the wicked Canaanites who dwelt in the land and bestowed his covenant mercies and promises upon them. He was establishing his church. He established his church when he called Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of slavery as they toiled for Pharaoh under the hot Egyptian sun. He called them out through Moses, through the Red Sea, through the waste-howling wilderness, and brought them into the land of Canaan. And there, as we sang earlier, he planted that vine in Canaan. The vine of his church he planted there in the land. And even when the Canaanites and Jebusites and Hittites and all the other Wicked nations attacked them in the period of the judges. God preserved them and defended them through the judges. In the era of the kings, David and Solomon and the other kings, God defended and preserved his church as he turned it into a kingdom. Even through the captivity, when he scattered the church into Babylon and the nations, He defended them and preserved them, and he called them out of Babylon and brought them back to the land of promise. And in 400 years, when there was no more prophecy and no more revelation, he continued to gather, defend, and preserve them until Christ came. Died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended up into glory. And now the Son of God continued to gather, defend, and preserve his church from his place at the right hand of God. He has been doing that for 2,000 years. And he will continue to build his church, as he promised, upon the rock of the gospel truth, and not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. Not even the Antichrist, when he rises up in the last days, 
when he brings the great tribulation and tries to stamp out the church, even then, the Son of God will gather, defend, and preserve his church so that on the great day when he returns, there will be a church on the earth. Still then, to look up and see the coming of the Redeemer and to be brought into the new heavens and earth to dwell with him forever. One holy Catholic church from all ages. And in the second place, the Catholicity of the church means we believe the church is found in all nations. Some believe that the church began on Pentecost. There was no church, they think, in the Old Testament. They think that the Israelites are a different people from the church. They think the Jews, even still today, are a different people from us Christians. That's called dispensationalism. But the truth of the catechism, which is the truth of Scripture, is that the church did not begin on Pentecost. The church began in the Garden of Eden. But something did happen on Pentecost that is very significant. The church that in the Old Testament was primarily gathered from the Jews is now also gathered from the Gentiles. That began on Pentecost. On Pentecost, when Christ poured out the Holy Spirit on his church in Jerusalem, they began to speak in tongues and other languages about the wonderful works of God. And that was a sign that the time has come that now God will open the doors of the church and he will gather into the church all the nations of the world because his plan from the beginning was always to have a Catholic church, a church from the whole world, from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ sent his apostles Go ye into all the world, he said, and teach all nations and preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. Because through the preaching of the gospel in missions, the Son of God continues to gather, defend, and preserve that Catholic church in all nations. He has been doing that since the days of the apostles. When Paul went on his missionary journeys, He preached to the Jew first, but then to the Gentile. When the Jews rejected the gospel, he turned to the Gentiles. He preached the gospel to the Greeks, the barbarians, the Scythians, the Romans. And churches were established in Gentile lands. Churches were established in Asia, in Africa, and in Europe. And the church spread from the east to the west as it infiltrated Gentile pagan lands. In the history of the church, the church at Rome emerged in the Middle Ages and attempted to exercise dominance over all the other churches. The church at Rome developed the belief that It was the primary church, the the head of all the other churches, and that the bishop of Rome, the minister of the church at Rome, was the highest of all the bishops. That all the other priests and all the other bishops had to obey him, who eventually became known as the Pope. So that what emerged over hundreds of years of Christian history was what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church, which lays claim to this article of our faith and says, I am the Catholic Church. We are the only Catholic Church. But during the Reformation, God raised up godly men to search the scriptures. And in their searching of the scriptures, they found that There is no one congregation that is above any other congregation. There is no one minister that is above any other minister. 
Christ is the only head of the church. And all ministers, elders, and deacons have equality of authority under Christ. And so once again, God restored the truth of the Catholicity of the church. The truth is that the church of Jesus Christ, the one church, is Catholic in the sense that it is found in all nations. And it's even scattered throughout denominations throughout the world. It is not a regional church. It is not a provincial church. It is not a national church. It is a universal church. And you can find true Christian believers in many nations, kindreds, tribes, and even in many denominations. The mission of the church continues today. The mission is not finished. And we as a congregation have a role to play in that mission. In the chaos of controversy and schism and church splits, the church often loses sight of its purpose on earth, of its mission. It gets confused in the weeds and the turmoil of controversy and loses sight of the fact that our calling is to bring the gospel to the world. Our calling is to bring the gospel within the church so that the church grows from within through the religious education of the children of believers, through Christian schools and catechism and coming to church with our children. But the church also grows through missions. Our calling is to reach out to the world, to send missionaries into the nations, and also as a local church, not only to support those far-off missionaries. Often, Reformed churches have been content to do missions, as one person put it, by proxy. Missions by proxy. In other words, there is a missionary far away, in some land far away, and we send support for him, we pray for him, and therefore we're doing missions. And they forget, we are to do missions right here. We, as a church, are also called to be involved in missions, in evangelism, in witness. That's our calling and our purpose That's why we're still here in the world and Jesus hasn't come back yet because the mission isn't finished. And that's something that we have to remind ourselves of constantly. The truth of the Catholicity of the church is a great blessing to us as well. When we remember this truth, it gives us a sweet sense of belonging to something bigger than our own family, bigger than our own church family, bigger than our own denomination even. We belong to a church that is found in all the world. A church made up of the communion of saints that stretches beyond these four walls, beyond the borders of Canada, beyond the borders of our town and province and municipalities, beyond the borders of our denomination. We belong to a church that stretches out across the great oceans of the world and is found all across the earth. What a blessing to know that. And even to know specific believers of other skin color, of other nationality, of other language. We are members of the one holy universal church of Jesus Christ. Now what about the holiness of the church? I believe one holy Catholic church. Is the church really holy? Are not the members of the church fallen sinners from the race of Adam and Eve, just like other men? Are we not just like other men, depraved, perverse and corrupt in all our ways. 
wholly unworthy of the grace of election and redemption and eternal life? Yes, we are. But in the first place, we also confess, I believe, the forgiveness of sins. One holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. The Church, the communion of saints, is the company of those who are forgiven. The company of those whom God has elected and for whom he has sent his only begotten Son into the world. So that although we are unholy, filthy, and wretched in ourselves, and every day we add to our filthiness and wretchedness, the Son of God came to wash us in his blood. In his love for us, he gave himself for us. Ephesians 5 tells us that he loved us and gave himself for us, that he might cleanse us and present us to himself, a holy church, without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. He came to purge us in his blood. He came to be holy for us who are not holy in ourselves. And he came to pay for our unholiness. I believe the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that too? Do you believe that as the catechism teaches here, even though in Lord's Day 23, even though my conscience accuses me that I have broken all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and I am still inclined to all wickedness, yet God graciously imputes to me the righteousness, holiness, and satisfaction of Christ So that it is just as if I never sinned. I am perfectly holy and righteous in Christ. Not in myself, not by myself or through myself, but because of Christ. His holiness is imputed to me and therefore God no more remembers my sins. He no more remembers all the filthy and wicked things I do against him. And even the sins against which I continue to struggle. But he forgives me. He has forgiven me, and he will forgive me, and he will never hold my sins against me. I'm a member of the church. I am and forever shall remain a member of the church, a possessor of the forgiveness of sins, through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are a communion of saints. Sinners in ourselves, saints in Jesus Christ. That in the first place. And in the second place, the Lord Jesus Christ pours out his Spirit upon us to sanctify us more and more in our lives, to work in us a hatred of sin so that we flee from sin. He takes us out of the world and sets us apart from the world to live in spiritual separation from the world. So that, as James puts it, pure religion and undefiled before God is that we visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. We come out from among the world and we remain spiritually, not physically, but spiritually separate, different. From the world. We shine as lights in the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are a city on a hill that cannot be hid. That's all the work of Christ, the light of the world, shining in us, sanctifying us. And he does that in the midst of the communion of saints. He gives gifts to the church. And as the apostle points out in the passage we read, one of those gifts is preachers. In the early church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors. And throughout the New Testament church, he continues to give pastors and elders and deacons to the church. And through the office bearers, through their ministry, Christ sanctifies us. 
Through the minister, he gives us the pure gospel of our salvation so that we're filled with a a shame over our sins and a gratitude to God and a desire to be different, to change, to be better than this, to grow in the Christian life, to repent of our sins. He gives us elders to admonish us when we go astray into sin, to discipline us, to bring us back to a repentant heart and a godly way of life. He gives all the saints so that we hold each other accountable to live the godly life. So that if a brother sins, we go to the brother privately and tell him his sin and say, Brother, I love you. Don't walk that way. And so that we build each other up and we encourage each other. Brother, sister, let's fight the good fight together. We use our spiritual gifts readily and cheerfully for the advantage and salvation of the other members. We love them enough that we want their salvation. We don't want to see them go astray and be lost and damned. We care about their souls. And so we encourage and we admonish with humility. The Lord Jesus is sanctifying us. We're a holy church and becoming holy through that work of sanctification. Our hope is that he will continue sanctifying us until the great day of his coming. Revelation 21, John says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth were passed away. And I saw the holy city, The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Holy. No more sin in her. No more spot. No more blemish. Perfectly holy. That's our hope. That we will dwell as a holy church, a Catholic church, one church, in the new creation with God through Christ, forever. What a day that will be. Amen. Our Father, we give thanks to thee for the truth concerning the church. What a blessing thou hast given to us to be members of the church, to know ourselves, to belong to that one universal church. And we thank thee for the forgiveness of sins and sanctification that one day we may be perfectly holy in thy presence.